values that we can create in our children or our athletes by the way we speak to them. For instance, if we want an analytical athlete, then we need to, uh, instead of giving them the answers, we need to ask more questions of them and have them solve the problems. So that's speaking to the analytical portion of the brain, which is the frontal lobe, right? The, 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 the frontal cortex. Uh, if you want your child to not fear failure and take risks and be creative, then you need to use words like love instead of using consequences. So instead of telling a kid, you missed this shot and you're on the bench, I love you whether you make that shot or not. I believe in you. And now what you've done is you've you've talked to the amygdala or you've talked to the, the brain stem, which is the fight or flight response, and you've calmed it down. So the child isn't going to freak out and flee. It's going to face up to that challenge because you've used words like love or believe, right? It is time to do something about inactive populations. From physical literacy to policy change to youth sport, education, and business development, we are a collective of smart and experienced servant leaders ready to take a stand. Welcome to the Quality Coaching Collective Podcast. It is time for action. Hello, my name is Martin Reeder. I'm a 2012 Canadian Beach Volleyball Olympian, Nike trainer, an athlete entrepreneur on a mission to positively shift the future. I will be your host as we speak with members of the collective to gain insight, challenge the status quo, and share our passion for improving health and sport culture. So clear your mind, grab a notebook, and let's dive into this episode. Welcome to the Quality Coaching Collective Podcast. Today's guest is Reed Maltby, youth coaching expert, speaker, educator, and author. I think he got two books in there, Reed. He's also the creator of Beyond the Game and chief content officer and lead speaker of Changing the Game Project. Welcome, Reed. Thanks. Happy uh, to be talking with you. Really looking forward to diving in with you. I've been loving your, your recent tweets as I've been paying more attention to that platform, and you got a lot of great information. So let's dive in, my friend. Three words you would use to define yourself, Reed. Three words I'd use to define myself. Uh, warrior, uh, echoes, and hmm, geek. <laughs> Well, and I'm happy to dive into each of those. Oh, so oh, oh, I talk a lot with coaches, organizations, and players, even parents, about creating a warrior mindset in their athletes. The idea that instead of making it a win-at-all-costs mentality in sports, we should be looking at a compete-at-all-times. And so the more I got into studying groups like the New Zealand All Blacks and some of these perseverance athletes and, and reading the bios of these, these great organizations that have put values first and, put, and, and, and they put uh, the mission of the organization ahead of any kind of outcome, I really latched onto that word warrior because a lot of people, you know, warrior has so many different meanings. And for me, if you look at it from an Eastern philosophy, philosophy perspective, Chinese word doesn't have a word for champion. They say warrior. So that's one of the reasons why I like to use that word. Uh, so warrior would define me just because that's something that I want every athlete to embrace that concept. Rather than winning, we're going to be warriors. And out of being warriors come all these other great facets of our of our uh, of ourselves. Uh, the second one echoes because when I did my TEDx in 2015, I talked about the echoes beyond the game and how important it is how we speak to our children 
because what we say will echo years later and actually leaves an imprint on their brain. And really what I was, was I was a megaphone from my coaches, everything that I've said and done, my mentors, my dad, my, the people that have raised me up to be a man, their words echo through me. And my hope is that someday the words that I've passed on will echo through somebody else and be passed on through the next generation. So echoes, it's, it's about the only thing you can leave on this planet is an echo maybe. <laughs> and then uh, what did I say when my final geek? geek. <laughs> and that's because I'm geek. such a nerd for research and, and, and reading as much as I can and learning from people. And you, like you said on Twitter, I'm constantly just scanning for more stuff to absorb because I feel like if we're going to help others succeed and we're going to help others seek this excellence and take their, their game or their coaching to the next level, then we need to be armed with as much research as possible. You know, data backed, scientifically driven, you know, empirically proven research, not just fallacies or myths or pseudoscience. Well, you do a great job of that. And I certainly have been benefiting from all the information you've been sharing. Love what you stand for and, and what you just shared is, is all of it. And then some uh, tons of things to introduce you as you are in and involved with and leading many things. How would you describe your current occupation, Reed? The greatest job on the planet. I'm cheating the system. <laughs> I say that every time I get up in front of a group. I, I mean, I used sports, and you know this because you're doing the same thing. We we got out of sports what we wanted to, which is it's created a lifestyle and a career for us where we can continue to be involved in that realm, and yet we get paid to do it, and we get to change lives. So I, I would define it as I'm cheating the system because what I do every day is pull research um, – look at new trends, study organizations, study athletes, study governing bodies, and then I put out as much as I can out there for changing the game project as its content developer or the chief content officer. So I'm the guy behind the curtain that's posting articles, doing the lives on our Facebook, managing the social media, and trying my best to, to, to call through as much as I can so that we put all the information in front of our uh, followers, because John and I believe that if we can arm our followers to make intelligent decisions based on research on things, then we've done our job. So we try to put as much as we can in front of them and interact with them and answer their questions and, and engage with them. Uh, and if I'm not doing that, I'm creating online courses for us. We, we, we are getting ready to launch one called Trans Transformational Coaching. Very excited to get that one out there. And I'm host the, or I produce the podcast. So John is the talent on the podcast and does phenomenal interviews. And then I'm the guy that sits behind the scenes and edits it and love that because this week we're doing, we're getting ready to launch a best of 2017 series. And I've been going through hours and hours and hours of tape, listening to the old podcasts and pulling out snippets so that we can do a best of where John introduces a clip and then the clip runs. And I'm so excited because I got to learn again. And then finally, if I'm not doing those, I'm out working with youth athletes, parents, coaches, governing bodies, boards, talking about the myths in youth sport, talking about how we can create warrior mindsets, uh, talking about how we can shift uh, this, this toxic youth sport culture into something that's beneficial to society. Well, let's, let's unpack some of that and, and stick on it for a bit because there's just so much there, Reed, and, and you're such a, an expert on so much of it. So can you explain a little bit more the ethos and what lives behind the warrior brain concept and, and what it is you're bringing to life there. Yes. So the whole ethos behind the warrior brain is this idea that 
we need to move away from outcomes and we need to look inward. So I want our athletes, I want our coaches, I want everybody thinking about the internal versus the external. So we talk about intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation or uh, locus of control internal versus external. A warrior seeks excellence within and a warrior is driven to compete to get up every day and be a little bit better than he or she was the day before. They don't get up to win the trophies. They get up to be a little bit better. They are not driven by what coach wants or what parents want or anything like that. They're driven by this internal drive to be great. Uh, They also look at everything they do as a journey and rather than what they get at the end. So I always tell the athletes, you know, it's, it's not what you get when you arrive, it's who you become along the journey. And so a warrior is always thinking about every step of the journey and how can I prove today that the whole idea of Brailsford's marginal gains, if I get just a 1% better every day, then I'm seeking excellence versus this whole idea of I'm going to have a perfect season or I'm going to have that perfect game. Cause this, that's just a fallacy. It doesn't exist. And so you're better seeking that excellence. The warrior mentality is one that's based on values. You know, a lot of teams go out there and the values are words on their website, or maybe it's, it's words they use to talk about, but they're not living them. And a warrior lives those values. So you see things like sacrifice and gratitude and teamwork and integrity. You see them living and breathing those into the habits that they have. Um, warriors have this unquenchable fire to always do what's right always be their very best and always put the greater good above themselves. And so I, I, a lot of times we'll talk about like Steph Curry and what I like about Steph Curry as this, as this warrior, why he's such a great warrior is this is a guy that when they were looking, you know, when he was leaving Davidson college, which by the way, nod to my alma mater, great school down in North Carolina, when he was leaving Davidson, the, the scouts for the NBA said he was too small. He was too weak. He had fragile you know, ankles. He, he didn't have the right kind of shot for him. He didn't know the game well enough. There were all these knocks against him. But he knew he was good enough to be there. And he knew that if he worked every day a little bit harder and became a little bit better every day, he could get there. And the guy has an unbelievable work ethic. And if you search out there for the videos, they talk about it. You know, he, he wouldn't leave the court until he swished five free throws in a row. Not made, swished five free throws in a row. You know, that was that seeking excellence. But anyway, the Golden State Warriors take a shot at him and he builds this, he, he and Steve Kerr and the rest of them, they build this beautiful culture and he goes on and becomes an M- NBA MVP. So this is a guy that had to fight every day, climb that mountain every day with a true warrior spirit, with that perseverance and that grit to get to the top of the NBA because he wasn't the biggest guy. He wasn't the strongest guy. He wasn't, you know, everything they said that was wrong about him, he used to his advantage to become one of the very best because he honed everything. Mm-hmm. He gets it. And then what's he do? He goes out and he sacrifices and said, let's, let's bring in Kevin Durant, right? And then Kevin Durant comes in. They go back to the NBA Finals. And who had the hot hand? It wasn't Steph. So here's a guy that got to the top of the game, was the M- former MVP. Would you want to share the spotlight with somebody else when you're in that? Most, most great athletes, when they get to the top, they don't want to share the spotlight. He says when he saw that KD had the hot hand, he got the ball into Kevin Durant's hands. He even set picks for the guy, right? <laughs> Here's just a guy that's sacrificing his body. I mean, can you imagine me setting a pick against – I'm 5'8", okay? Can you imagine me setting a pick against LeBron? He's going to make a grease spot out of me, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Steph is you know, not much bigger than me. So here's just a guy that was willing to set picks against far bigger, far stronger guys just so Kevin could get it open. They win, they win the NBA championship because Kevin had a hot hand and he was willing to sacrifice for a teammate. Yeah. Take the warrior spirit one step further. It's contagious. So in the offseason this past season, 
Kevin Durant was the player that sacrificed some of his salary so that they could stay under the salary cap and keep another player rather than let him go to another team. Mm -hmm. Because Kevin now also is that sacrificial warrior that thinks about the greater good. So that's one of the ways that I talk about that warrior spirit, warrior mentality. I love that. How can people get access to to that? Do you have an ebook out there? Or do you have anything that that's uh, deliverable for for people to dive into? I do. If you go to my website, there's a sign up for it, and it's uh, coachread.com and read spell with two e's. If you go to my website, there's a there, there's a pop up that'll pop up, and there's also a couple spots where you can click, and you can get what's called the Warrior Brains PDF, mm-hmm. and it just lists. The, it lists the different values that we can create in our children or our athletes by the way we speak to them. For instance, if we want an analytical athlete, then we need to, uh, instead of giving them the answers, we need to ask more questions of them and have them solve the problems. So that's speaking to the analytical portion of the brain, which is the frontal lobe, right? The, 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 the frontal cortex. Uh, if you want your child to not fear failure and take risks and be creative, then you need to use words like love instead of using consequences. So instead of telling a kid, you missed this shot and you're on the bench, I love you whether you make that shot or not. I believe in you. And now what you've done is you've you've talked to the amygdala or you've talked to the, the brain stem, which is the fight or flight response, and you've calmed it down. So the child isn't going to freak out and flee. It's going to face up to that challenge because you've used words like love or believe, right? So it's it walks you through all the different, and of course, me being a geek, the words are attached to the word warrior. So every value begins with a letter from the word warrior. You are a very culture-rich human. Seems like you lead with that. Does that relate to your Echoes Beyond the Game TEDx talk? It does. It does. Uh, so my belief is is that communication is, from a cultural perspective, how we speak, how we interact, the body language you use, the facial expressions we use, we begin to build the culture around us with just that communication with our communication channels. So if we as coaches are modeling and communicating in an improper way, that's going to resonate throughout the culture. And so will all the athletes. Have you ever seen that team where the athletes are on the field bickering and screaming and pointing and blaming times that comes from some of us adults, because that's what we've been doing. So it bleeds into the athletes through our communication channel. So echoes was the whole idea that Everything we do is resonating through the people around us. So we want to make sure that what we're doing is creating those positive echoes within our culture so that even if we're – and the best example I can give is I was at a club in Cincinnati, Star Soccer Club, and my job was to – they were already an amazing club. My job was to highlight what they were doing well and to amplify that for them, right? And we we did things like at the end of every training session, which Todd Bean just, I just posted an article from Todd Bean at Tovo Academy about this because he said the same thing. There are two questions that solve everything. At the end of every training session, all of our coaches asked two questions. Did you have fun? Did you learn anything? That's all we cared about with our kids. Mm. And that began to resonate throughout the culture to the point where people at other clubs would play our teams and then call me up and say, hey, I want to come try out for your club because you got something special. The way your parents interact, the way the coaches behave, the way the players interact, we want to be a part of that. And it was all their communication patterns. But the idea is that you create those kind of echoes when you can step away from that culture and you weren't the the linchpin, you weren't the reason it was like that, you've got a great culture. I'm no longer at that club and it still has an amazing culture. So that means that it's their culture. It wasn't something I did. And it's the same thing when Steph is on the bench, his team is still performing very well. So it's not just Steph. It becomes this whole cultural communication pattern, which means that everybody plays a role. 
Now, how do you seed that culture? Are, are you actively a part of presenting something that the athletes can then buy into on their own terms? Are there some exercises that you use to, to, to create that where you're not the one where it's all hinging upon? Like, how do you bring that forward? So the first thing I like to do is I like to work with the administration and get their buy-in because they're the, they're the ones that if they're not bought in, things aren't happening. You know, it has to be top level. Yeah. Then I talk with the coaches. I, I walk coaches through my uh, Warriors Not Winners uh, seminar, which is the whole idea of instilling these warrior minds. And I, I talk a lot about the New Zealand All Blacks and the values they use and how we bring those to the table with our athletes and how they become intentional with the culture. And we really work through what the coaches can do physically every day at their organization to create this culture. And so we talk about moving from core values to core behaviors. And one of the ways we do it with the coaches is we say, one, you need to include the athletes. And so that's the other thing I do is I'll sit down with the athletes and we'll do workshops where it's athletes and coaches. And we're going through and figuring out what our values are. So it's not just me as a coach saying, these are our four values and you're going to follow it. It's me as a coach saying, hey, players, what values resonate with you? What values matter to you as players? And we develop those values together. Mm. And in our new transformational coaching course that I'm doing with Changing the Game Project, John and I actually walk through an exercise. And we, in the course, we'll actually have a PDF for coaches to use where they go through a values session with their athletes and create these team values, which means that everybody created them, everybody owns them, and now everybody's accountable to live up to these values. But then my big piece is they're vague, they're words, and they're not being lived. They're just core values. So I always institute what we call habits of excellence with our teams, with our coaches, with our athletes. We walk our coaches through and our athletes through what would gratitude look like in everyday life. Because if you ask a kid to define gratitude, they have no idea. But if you show them what it looks like, they do. And that becomes a habit of excellence. It's something they do every time they're on the playing field, every time they're with their coaches, every time they're in a situation, that habit comes out. So for instance, at the end of a game, kids going across the field, soccer field, obviously, because I'm a soccer guy, kids going across the sporting surface and thanking their parents or whoever brought them to the game for that, for doing that for them, that is a show of gratitude. Now they're living that value. Respect. You always shake the other team's hand and look them in the eyes, and you always shake the referee's hand. That's a sign of respect. Uh, we used to do discipline. Our players would have to have their socks pulled up, their bags lined up, and their shirts tucked into their shorts when the game started. Yes, it seems militaristic, and yes, it seems kind of petty, but at the same time, what it's telling these kids is we are always disciplined, and these are our habits. Just like it seems militaristic, quote-unquote, to tell my kids to brush their teeth every day. But as soon as we do that, what we're doing is we're creating that habit of excellence, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody would laugh at me if I said, I make my kid brush his teeth every day. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Well, then we should make our players show some form of discipline before every game so that they are disciplined. So once once I get into that, then uh, John and, and Jerry Lynch, uh, Dr. Jerry Lynch and, and, and James Leith and I will work with organizations where we'll come into an organization and work with them over a period of time, helping to continue to intentionally build that culture. And you're right. There are games you can do. There's communication uh, exercises. There are uh, there are interaction exercises. There are leadership building exercises. There are teamwork dynamic exercises that we can do with the athletes and the coaches, so that every day they're intentionally building. But the thing we always tell the coaches is, if you've got 15 minutes to spare, this needs actually you need to make the 15 minutes to start really honing in on your culture because culture eats talent for breakfast. Plain and simple, culture eats talent for breakfast. A team with a great culture will survive the hard times and will overcome those more talented teams because of that culture. 
and I always point to the New Zealand All Blacks. This is an organization that has an over a 70% winning rate over 114 years. All they do is win, but they're not focused on winning. They're focused on being a values-driven organization that fulfills the legacy that was started 100 years ago. And because of that, winning becomes this beautiful byproduct of this great culture that they have. Oh, I love it. That's my language. It's, it's so great. And it's, it is so necessary that we use the vessel of sport to create better human beings and empower these kids outside of or beyond outcome. And uh, speak about all of the things that you're, uh, you're bringing up, which is so impressive, Reed. I, I love it. And I'd just love to give you a moment to speak about changing the game project and, and what it is that you guys stand for with that organization and, and what you're bringing to the surface within sport culture for youth. I'd love to. That's So John contacted me in 2015. I've been working with him since then. I became full-time back in April, this past April. And uh, I, I, since I met John, since I watched his TEDx, since I read his book, I've been fully into his ethos of what he wants for changing the game project. And it really is about giving the experience back to the children. It's about enriching the children's sport experience so that they can carry that into life, right? We're creating better human beings, and that's why I'm so bought in. Because you, you said it, I, I talk about beyond the game, the idea that everything we do should go beyond the game, that I should be coaching these kids that are 10 for when they become 40, that I have, I have an obligation, I have this beautiful obligation to help these kids learn great values, have a great role model, uh, life skills, and, and all the other pieces of the puzzle so that when they go on to be whatever it is they choose to be in life, they're excellent at that and they're, they're highly contributing positively, uh, highly contributing citizens in our community, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that what you want? And that's changing the game is all about dis- basically dispelling those myths that have involved in sport the idea that it's about outcomes the idea about early specialization the myth about sports as an investment when you and i sported when we were young martin we didn't think about scholarships and shoe contracts and all those other things we sported because we loved it and we sported because of the role models and our friends the social piece all those other pieces of the puzzle and yet we've shifted into this whole Oh, my kid's 10 and I'm already looking at colleges and I'm, I've got all these experts working with my child so that she can get a scholarship. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. We, we don't get into sports for that. That's a great byproduct. But you should really be using sports as this vehicle for, for creating great human beings. And that's really what changing the game is all about is putting the kids back at the center of everything we do, doing what's best for them and knowing that if we're properly trained, properly educated and we know what the kids really want, we're going to create a great environment for them so that they go on to be great human beings. Oh, that's so great. So, so much work to be done in that space in North America and, and globally, and you guys are the leaders in that. So let's dive in a little bit deeper. What issues are you seeing in your area of expertise, and, and then what solutions are you providing for them? So maybe just a, a deeper dive into, into that issue within the change in the game and, and what you guys are uh, aiming to accomplish. Uh, so a lot of the issues we see is this disconnect between parents and coaches and it's caused by the myths you've got you've got organizations pushing and saying that the kid at 10 years old has to quit all other sports and play just our sport year-round and they need to pay extra to have these specialists and they need to play 150 games in a year and all these other things you've got the parents uh pushing back 
uh, some are some are you know falling in line and saying this is what I have to do I'll do it and it's because they love their kids but you have others that love their kids so much that they push back to the point where it creates this animosity mm-hmm. and so I was just I was just on my my coaching code podcast with uh, Gordon McClellan with wor- working with parents in sports out of in sport out of um, the UK and he and I were talking about that there's this us versus them mentality and it's everywhere anytime I'm in a room full of coaches I, and it's not all of them so I don't want to generalize but a lot anytime I'm in a room full of coaches. If I do a, a word association game with them, say I'm going to say one word, and the moment I say that word, I want you just to yell out the first word that comes to your mind, and then I say the word parent. It is amazing some of the feedback I get. Cancer and overbearing and you know a pain in the butt and all these other things. I'm like, wow, you've already you've never even met some of these parents, and that that's how you've you've colored your vision of them before you even met them. You've already put on these sunglasses of distaste, right? Mm-hmm. And but you do the same with parents. We've got we've got organizations out there that are telling parents that they need to be more belligerent, quote unquote, towards the organizations. No, we need to work together. So that's one of the biggest issues we face. And so what John and I love doing is we'll go into an organization and when they hire us, we're there for the whole day. I'll do up to three. I've done four before. They they wear me out, but I'll do up to three talks in a day. I'll work with administration or athletes. I'll work with coaches and I'll work with parents. And typically those last two groups are the groups that are almost a non-negotiable. I have to work with the coaches and I have to work with the parents because those are the, the adults that have the touch points with those athletes. And if I can create a better relationship between those two so that they are collaborative in the process and they're all on the same page, the kids are going to win and that's what matters. But we've adultified youth sports and that's really one of the biggest issues we face is removing that adultification and getting them to work together. So what does success look like when you come in and you're speaking to athletes, you're speaking to coaches, and you're speaking to parents? You're looking, obviously, to get them all to play for the same team and to to work together. But how do you approach each one of those topics uh, around the athlete, the coach, and the parent to bring them together? So um, with the parents, one one of our biggest successes is when you get that parent that comes up to you at the end. And I've had them where they're crying and they go because we show some videos and we talk about some of the myths and we talk about the car ride. And I, I share very personal stories that I've experienced as a player, as a coach, as a parent. When you get that parent that comes up and they're, they, they, they look at you and they say, oh, my gosh, I've been that parent and I can't I, I'm going to change. I'm going, you know, I had one mom come up to me. She was crying and she says, I'm the parent in that video. And I can't believe I did that to my child. I said, no, no. You've done nothing wrong. You loved your kid. It was just what we were doing, what you thought you were doing out of love was ended up being detrimental. But the fact that you recognize that, we can change. And kids are resilient. They will bounce back as long as we make the changes. Uh, so that's always a huge success when we see these parents where the light bulb goes off and they're like, oh, my gosh, this is how I can engage the coach. This is these are the this is the way I can speak to my child. This is the behavior I can model for my child so that the experience becomes about them with coaches. It's typically you're in a room and, and, and usually half of them you get in the head nods because, you know, they, they they're already they're already singing from the same hymnal and they get what you're talking about. But every once in a while you get that one coach whose arms crossed feet up on the desk. I don't need to listen to this guy. I've been doing this for 30 years. I, I did it the way my coach did it, the way his coach did it, and I don't need to change. And if you start talking about how, you know, surgeons, surgeons, if I had a surgeon that came to me and said, hey, I'm going to do a procedure on you that was done to me 30 years ago, and it, w- and it was done by a doctor who learned it from his, 
his doctor 30 years prior, you'd go, I want a second opinion because science evolves, right? Our research evolves us. And yet in sports, we don't evolve, evolve our coaching methods. And it's kind of scary to think we're doing what we did 30 years ago when we know so much more about the human brain and the human body and social interaction and learning theory and pedagogy and all those other pieces of the puzzle. And so it's that one coach who seems so resistant that by the end they come up and they say, wow, I really like what you're doing. Will you send me more? Or how can I find out more? Or I want to take your transformational coaching course. Or can I e email you about a problem I have? That's a success. Uh, I, when I first did my TEDx, all said and done, bared everything out on that stage. And I knew, I knew that what I said would put a target on my back with certain coaches because I was basically speaking out against the way that some coaches coach with this berating their players and screaming at them and calling them names and all of that. And my wife said, what do you, what do you want out of this now? What's the success look like for you? And I said, if just one of those coaches, one of those coaches who I modeled when I first stepped out on that stage would change, then it's a win. And a year later, I, got a, I, I, I actually had a coach contact me and say, I was that coach. And I've been working on the way I communicate with my players. Amazing. That's a win, right? For the athletes, the big one for me is is to get these kids to really tap into what matters most for them. Mm. Because they I, I just saw an argument between two people, the BBC article that came out about how adults are ruining sport, and some guy says, Oh, you mean kids don't want to win? They want to win. Every time I ask my kids if they what they like, losing or winning, they go, We want to win. And this guy's like, I'm not saying that. The author was like, I'm not saying that. What I'm trying to point out is that we've made winning so important that by proxy, they've made winning so important. That's what I'm trying to point out. And obviously the argument kept going, but that's the big key is kids do want to win, but it's number 48 on the list of 81 <laughs> things they do want to do. The number one re thing they want to do is have fun, yeah. right? And there are 81 ways you determine fun. And so the best thing that I, the, the biggest success I get when I'm working with athletes is to get them to unlock what is really fun for them. Because if I can get them passionate and joyful and excited about being at, at whatever sport it is, they're going to stay longer. And the longer they stay, the more we have a chance to get role models in front of them who can really make a difference with them. And the better chance we have at instilling these values and creating these life skills for them. And so the big success with the kids is when they leave wide-eyed, excited, quote-unquote, foaming at the mouth to keep playing that sport. And it's funny because I'll do that Warriors Not Winners talk with the kids, which is very adult-oriented. And I had a room one time of swimmers eight, from age like 8 to 18. And they're all just, I mean, they're, you can see them all. They're foaming at the mouth. And we ran out of time. And I had to do the parent talk next. And I said, kiddos, we're out of time. But I have a little bit more I really want to do with you. Some, so a few more things I want to show you having to, to, to unlock this warrior code. But I don't want to step on your parents' toes. What do you kids want to do? And all of them, including the 8-year-old, go, keep going. I've been going for an hour and 15 minutes. Okay. And when an 8-year-old wants you to keep going, you're tapping into something that matters. That's a success. And, of course, when the parents came in the room, I apologized to them. Actually, they came in and sat at the back at the end of the talk so they could get hear it. I apologized to him, and one parent said, why? You're really here for them. We're glad you spent more time with them. That's when I look at it as a success with our athletes is if I get them that excited to, 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 to tap into their own fun and joy in the game. Oh, it's so great, and I'm, I'm starting to dialogue a lot more with kids and, and dive into the parent side and the coach's side. And I recently had my, my first big talk, and I, I got an hour of focused attention, and all the teachers came up to me afterwards and just said, 
I haven't seen them sit still for that long, <laughs> for so long. And that was a huge win for me. And you're, you're right. You're there for the kids. And you get a kid who's in grade eight listening for an hour and 15 minutes. That is special. You're making a long-term impact with that. You, you, you know the feeling, man, right? I mean, it's awesome. And <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, thinking about you know, your knowledge and, and experience, where lies the biggest opportunity for impact in the youth landscape? The grassroots level. I'm not sure if I quite, uh, I'm not sure if I'm answering it the way you want, but I think our biggest opportunity at, at impact is at the grassroots level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because and- a lot of the, Oh, sorry, go on. No, no, just let's build out on that. I, I love it. There's no wrong answer here. It's you, you have such a unique understanding. You've seen so much. You've read so much. You've led so much. You've, you've had great conversations with internationally uh, recognized leaders and coaches. Like, it's time for change. We have to do this. Where can we go? And grassroots, I totally agree. So, so let's dive in. So what's interesting is, and you're right, I've gotten, I got to tell you, I, I've, it, it's, uh, I'm trying to remember who it was, um, that said, I, I know so much because I've stood on the gi- shoulders of giants. Um, uh, it'll come to me. But anyway, it's, um, that, that's what I've done. I've just stood on the shoulders of giants, right? And I can see so far because of the people who've done the work in front of me, who pioneered it. And I've gotten very lucky. And I've had conversations with people that I, I'm literally dancing while I'm on the phone with them or on Skype with them because I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm actually on the phone with so-and-so. This is what, you know, or... I've met them at conferences and I've been like, man, this is mind boggling that I'm rubbing shoulders with excellence. Right. And so I have, and what's interesting is every one of those people, no matter who they are, Todd Bean, who was, who studied for 14 years under Johan Cruyff, right? I mean that he is like the coach of coaches in soccer. I mean, if you look at the lineage of European soccer, almost all of it comes out of that total right now, this comes through that total football concept through Ajax and through Barcelona and through, so it's like, this is a man where if you look at his, his coaching family tree, most of the coaches that are in the the English Premier League and in all the other European leagues had at some point in time had a touch point with him or La Masia or Ajax or or, or Rhinus Michaels. So so here's a guy, Todd, Todd Bean, who, who studied with him for 14 years and is carrying on his legacy, and he says grassroots. I talked to Nick Levitt at the FA, and he says grassroots. I talked to um, – you know, I talked to David Dale over in Scott, Scottish FA, and he says grassroots. I was talking to English rugby, and they're saying grassroots. And it's like everybody – and then I talked to local organizations, and they're saying – you know, so the local baseball organization here in San Diego, and they're saying grassroots. And you talk to AYSO and SAY, and I'm up in Prince Edward Island, and all of them are saying grassroots. Why is – from top to bottom, why is everybody saying grassroots? Because the pure, because what we have right now is we've got this very top-down view of sports Everything is about the elite athletes and all the resources are put into these athletes that are already elite. And I always say that's like building a million dollar pantry for the vegetables you've already picked from your garden. Yes, you need to work with them, but you're not watering the garden because you didn't spend any money on cultivating what was still growing. And so if we really want to fix things, we have to think grassroots. And I'll give you best example I can. U.S. soccer. It's been the big uproar. Since we got knocked, since we didn't qualify for the 2018 World Cup, and I, right away my first comment was, "Why? Why the outrage? Why are you just now outraged?" What worries me the most is it took us not qualifying for the World Cup to be outraged. Like, like an outcome would have fixed it. If we'd qualified for the World Cup, would we have been okay with this? Yeah, we would have. Yeah. Because some of our elite level athletes said, 
as long as we win the as long as we qualify, that's all that matters. No, it doesn't. It, there's something that's systemically wrong with U.S. soccer. But everybody was banking everything on 23 men or 23 women, and all the money is funneled into that. You know, and it's like, wait, let's take a step back. And now finally, the conversation is being had. It's because we're doing nothing in the system. If you get a bunch of four or five year olds introduced to the game and they have a bad coach because you didn't properly train that coach, you didn't give that coach the resources, you just asked the first sucker to raise his or her hand, they will leave. And if you're cutting them at age eight, nine, and 10, and you're getting 150 kids at a trial and you're keeping 20 and cutting the other 130, they're leaving the game. If you've got kids that are nine years old, and they're sitting the bench the whole game so that your biggest, fastest, strongest can go out and win you the tournament trophy. The team they beat 10 nothing in the finals of the tournament, those kids are going to leave the game. And the kids who are sitting on your bench who got zero playing time at nine years old, they're going to leave the game. So the problem is, is we're not putting the resources where it matters most. That very first touch point where we can create a passion for the game. Listen, you don't need, I think... I personally think you want some of your best coaches coaching the youngest. And when I was at a club, I was always asking for the eight-year-olds or we'd have an age group with five teams and I'd say, give me the fifth team because that's the least, right? It's quote unquote, these are the 10-year-olds that are the smallest and not the strongest yet. So they were all not picked for the top teams because we pick based on size, speed, and strength, which is silly <laughs> at that age because it's going to be all over the board over the next four or five years. We don't know who your biggest, strongest, fastest is at 10 years old. <laughs> But I take those least teams or the last teams or the smallest teams because for me it was like, hey, if I can give them what I the knowledge that's been bestowed upon me and groom them, then I'm moving them up through the system, right? And then when they choose to leave the system, they've gone as far as they possibly can and they'll go on and become great recreation players and play for life because they had such a passion and joy for the game, or they'll move up through the elite ranks. But we we complain about not, you know, the US doesn't put out the best talent on the field. Well, one is our talent pool is so small by the time they get to the age where they start choosing them for national teams because we've cut or forced out or out or coached out of the game all those kids that the talent pool is small. Two, we did nothing for the talent pool at the various youngest, very, the youngest ages to groom them up into the game. And so one of the best things U.S. soccer could have done recently was identifying soccer shots as its official uh, product if you want, if you will, for ages two to two to five, I think I said four and five, but soccer shots works with ages two to nine. Why do I like this? Because soccer shots focuses on developmentally appropriate training. It focuses on physical literacy. It goes into each state and, and checks the, um, the educational standards for physical literacy and physical education and developmental standards. And then it creates curricula that fit those educational standards. It requires here in San Diego, our franchises here in San Diego require the coaches to have at least 10 credit hours in early childhood education. So we're putting experts on the field and we train those experts on not just skills and drills. You know, it's not about Googling as 300 skills and drills for the same technique. We train them on communication patterns, 
ethics, discipline, respect. We train them on how to talk with children. You sit down, you get eye to eye with them, you, you put the sun at the child's back. You, you, these are the words that you can use. We, we used to t- tell our coaches at the San Diego Soccer Shots, what echoes will your kids repeat at the dinner table? What did you say today that will get repeated at home? Because it better be something positive. High fives change lives. Every kid you see, you high five them because that could be that one, you could be the one moment, the, the rule of one, as as Jerry Lynch calls it, you could be that one person who changes their life with that simple high five. That's what we do with our coaches. And so what happens is our coaches become these developmental experts first, soccer coaches second. And so they're grooming the kids for two big things. They want the children to fall in love with the game so that they will stay with it for life. And I used to tell the coaches when I was at soccer shots, listen, if you make these kids fall in love with the game so much so that you build such a strong foundation they will have that one bad season or two bad seasons. They'll have that bad coach or that bad team or that bad teammate or whatever. It's going to happen. The odds are they're going to have a negative experience. But if you've built a, this great foundation for them, it will carry them through that negative experience and they'll stay in the game as long as possible. That right there is why I say grassroots. And the best thing U.S. soccer could have done was to get an organization that gets that. Give them all the resources they need at age two, three, four, five, six when it matters most. So they stay in the game long enough and they're starting to build those physical literacy components. They're building those developmentally appropriate components and they're getting some skill in there as well. Technique is being peppered in at young ages. I could not agree more. That is just so profound. And I, you said a word starts with L ends with of, and, uh, I'm just wondering, where does love fit into the picture for you? I, mean, I, I love how you referenced it within that story of, of getting kids to love it so much that they'll be able to, to stick it through the tough times. How does love fit into the picture for you? Love is the very first thing above all else, in my opinion, above all else. Love should be the very first thing that's calculated or that is built into or calculated or thought of or conceptualized or, or implemented the very first thing is love. Listen, and, and and Jerry Lynch talks about this. He, I actually there was we had a podcast for Wave Champions where it was Wade Gilbert who helped with the USOC um, quality coaching framework and has written some better every seasons. He's you know coaching better every season. He's phenomenal, phenomenal. And he and Jerry were talking about how you say love to people and they give you say love to a ten year old. They give you a sideways glance. You say love to people. You're trying to publish a research paper and use the word love, and they're going to push back and we don't want that word. It insinuates certain things. Love has so many different meanings. But what we mean by love is we mean the John Wooden kind of love. And they talk about it in that podcast. When people ask John Wooden what the secret of his success was, it's he said it's because he loved. He cared. He came from a place of loving at all times. As coaches, we should be coming from a place of love. Those people, those little people that were put in our charge on that field or on that ice or on that court or on that sand – They need more than anything for us to truly connect with them, to care deeply about them as human beings and their success as human beings, and to love love them enough that they feel safe, they feel protected, and they feel empowered to own their own experience. Parents, you love your kids, and we don't doubt that. But if you just step back and love them instead of trying to mow everything down for them or just trying to tell them what they need to do or tell what they did wrong, if you just simply say, I love watching you play, you open them up. You give the experience back to them. 
administrators and coaching education specialists and everybody else. Love's got to be the first word. I tweeted it out yesterday, and we were, I was talking with some people about it on Twitter, and we were, talk, we were talking about coaching licenses. And I said, the problem is you get into a coaching license course, and it may have all the right pieces of the puzzle, but it's happened. I've seen them where you have that educator who's screaming at the players or screaming at the adults or using – you know, making – I've had people come back and say, the coaching educator made a comment, and it was this, and it was very negative, and it was nasty, and it was blah, blah, blah. And it's like it's old school, right? And they all go, well, I'm old school. It's just how I do it. You, know, you tear kids down. And I always go, no, John Wooden was old school. You're not old school. And John Wooden led with love, so I don't know why you can't. But the problem is, is if you're educating these coaches to not start with love – then you've just created a course full of people who go out and they don't start with love. Love's got to be the first thing in there. And if you want to use a different word, fine. Use a different word. Take our transformational coaching course that's coming out this month on Changing the Game Project, and you'll see a different word. Connection. Mm. Caring. Start there, and here's why. That's what athletes want. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <clears throat> love, care really dictates everything because that's a connection between the coach and the athlete and you you just nailed it on on so many different terms and i had a great mentorship ship coaching session with uh, a few coaches in the fitness industry last week and it just it came down to caring you need to present an opportunity for that person who is giving you 50 minutes to an hour where they can grow and you care about them and you believe in them more than they do in themselves and if you can present that opportunity, they will get so much from it. But if you don't care and it's just your job, then they're not going to get much from it. I totally agree. That's the other thing. You have to love what you do because if mm-hmm. you love what you do, they see that. They feel that. It's contagious, right? Totally. It's like you know, if you're, if you're too serious or like you said, if, you're not loving, if you don't care about those kids and you don't care about what you do, they, they read into that. It's funny. Is a couple years back, my wife and I were sitting in a little coffee shop cafe. And uh, we overheard this group of looked like they were like seniors in high school or freshmen in college talking, and they were just hammering their coach. I mean, they were saying every bad thing about their their coach that they could. And I turned around and recognized the logo of the organization on one of the shirts. So I go over to them and I said, "Excuse me, I couldn't help but overhearing your conversation, but you're really knocking this coach." And before I could even finish the sentence, one kid said, because he didn't care about us. All he cared about was winning. Mm. And, well, when did you play for him? Oh, we, none of us play for him anymore. That was a couple years ago. And they're still talking about that coach. And I went back. I, mean, I talked to him for a couple minutes. I knew who the coach was. I knew right away who the coach was. Mm-hmm. I talked to him for a couple minutes. And, you know, we were just, what are you doing now? What are you playing? You know, where, are you, where are you going to school? You know, that kind of thing. I go back over to sit down with my wife and I go, my goodness, I hope, I hope 10, 15, 20 years, even two years from now, I hope that there are no kids sitting in a coffee shop saying that about me. I mean, how awful is that? That that's the impression you left. That they sit and badmouth you at a coffee shop. Yeah. I mean, I'd rather them be sitting at a coffee shop and saying, thank God Martin cared about me because he got me through a really tough year or because I was able to accomplish this because I knew Martin cared about me. Yeah. That's the kind of conversation we want or better yet, you get their wedding invitation or their graduation announcement or their firstborn child's announcement or whatever in the mail because they still feel connected to you 20 years after you coached them. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Well, perfect segue, perfect segue is something a little bit more personal. Can you share a tale or a moment that really captures why you love what you do, Reed? 
All right. So I, I've got one that I've, I've told before, but I have so many of them. And that, I think that's the beautiful thing is there's always a card on my desk or something pinned to my wall or a sticky note or, or something, an email saved that's from a former player or a parent of a former player. In my TEDx, I talk about that team in Florida. And I still, to this day, those, those boys reach out. They're men now. <laughs> they're married. They're married. And they still reach out to me and say things. And it, it, But I had this team in Ohio uh, a couple years ago. And I get an invitation to go to a Thanksgiving uh, gratitude meal at this one kid's school. And the dad's all excited. And he, he calls me and says, hey, you know, my son's doing a Thanksgiving thing at school. And he was to, he needed to write a letter about somebody he was grateful for being in his life. And he wrote about you. And instead of his dad being, like, disappointed because it wasn't him or something, his dad's like, I think that's the coolest thing on the planet, you know? I know my kid loves me, but I think it's so cool that – his soccer coach was the one he wrote about because that means you actually cared about him, right? And he's like, so can you go? And it was a luncheon thing. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I go to this luncheon thing and I show up at this school and it's one of those little, it's one of those public schools in, in Ohio and it can get pretty big. So there's like, this school has like a thousand kids in it. <laughs> I mean, it's massive. There are a couple hundred kids just in his grade, right? And so we go into the lunchroom and they sit us all down and they bring in all the kids. So here's a couple hundred kids coming in. And, and there are like six or seven kids from that team at that school. Plus, there's all these other kids from our soccer club there. So I'm just seeing kids everywhere I know. And I'm like, hey, and I'm waving and fist bumping. And I'm like, this is really cool. I know all these kids. They didn't tell me this, but they picked hand-picked a couple kids to read the letter to the whole room. Mm. And his was one of them. And I haven't heard the letter yet. And I look around and I realize that it's all grandparents and it's all parents and it's all uncles and aunts. And I mean, it's, it's all family, right? And I felt like a fish out of water because I'm not family to this kid. I'm, I'm just his soccer coach. And it's like, I'm starting to feel like, yeah, I feel guilty. Like, why didn't he write it about his grandpa or his dad or something, you know? And it's like, he gets up there and he reads this letter and I start crying. Because I realize that there's nothing in the letter about soccer. Nothing. He talks about, you know, my coach, he taught us to be men. And he taught us to own up and be accountable for things we do. He taught us to love each other. He taught us this. He, he helped us understand this. He created a, a, an experience that I fell in love with with game itself. And I love my teammates. And, I, you know, and, and he's going on. He never mentioned soccer or he taught me how to shoot or he taught me how to dribble or he taught me this. It was all about all of those extra pieces, the software that matters, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I go home and, and my wife, I mean, I'm like, I call my wife. I said, you're not going to believe this. And I tell her the story and I'm, I'm crying when I'm telling her. And she's like, honey, that's why you do what you do. Mm -hmm. She goes, that's the thing that makes you go back every year. It's always been that way. <laughs> So that's that's one of those moments that you realize, my goodness. I mean, I would much rather have a trophy case full of letters like that or pictures of them when they, you know, their wedding pictures or whatever than medals and trophies. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's what it's all about right there, Reed. Uh, tough to tough to move on from that one, but <laughs> what change or shift in culture are you personally championing through your behavior? Uh, 
my my big one is the communication patterns. Uh, I'm really trying to shift how we speak to athletes, how we speak to parents, how parents speak to coaches, how teams within you know how internally how teams communicate. And I think a lot of it rises from that. I think, like I told you earlier, great cultures typically rise out of communication. We are the we are the only species on the planet that has such a deep ability to communicate. It's not just through noises. Um, we actually form words, and words have multiple meanings, and we have sarcasm, and we have this and that. I mean, we, we have such a deep communication process that it, it, it's the one of the most important things, and it's one of the gifts we have. And so I, my big one is I continue to champion how we communicate and understand communication. Communication is not a one-way street, mm-hmm. and it is not just words. Communication is facial expressions and body language and values. I always tell coaches, listen, you speak with your values more sometimes than you do with your mouth. What do you mean by that? You tell your kids, I want you to be creative and take risks. And then, but your first action is when a kid makes a mistake in a game is you sub that kid out. So with your actions, you just told that kid, I truly don't believe what I said. Don't take risks. And that kid will never take a risk. Or you decide that you're going to say it, right? So it's verbal. But you're also going to model it so it's visual. So the kid makes a mistake, but you don't sub the kid out, but you stomp your feet or clap your hands or put your hands on your hips. And again, you're showing a value, right, to this kid that really you don't value that. And so don't be creative. And that's the big one that I keep trying to champion is just how do we communicate? And that's what all my books are about. You know, I've got Echoes Beyond the Game, which is in process. It's being edited now, and it's all about all the different communication channels and how we hone them. I've got one, my, probably right now my favorite that I've just finished up and I'm trying to get published is, it's it's if neither and it's the um, the power of uh, the power and peril words in youth sport and, and actually in performance situations and how certain words we use unlock processes in the brain and actually inhibit peak performance while other words we use shut down processes in the brain and prohibit peak performance because the brain is like a computer in that sense and so the commands that are used can either make it shut down or unlock. And so, you know, words like can't, can't is a virus. Can't is the kind of word that you plug it into a computer software program and it shuts the system down. But yet is a word that actually unlocks, unlocks the system and, and gets the system working because now you've created a future for this kid. So the brain starts thinking about how it can overcome this problem, how it can get to that solution. So um, communication is my big thing. Amazing. Now, shifting more towards the Quality Coaching Collective here to close off, why did you want to be a part of the Quality Coaching Collective? Oh, that's easy. I I think I said it in the first call we did, which was so cool. I looked and saw this amazing group of people who knew so much more than me and were doing so much more than me and had, you know, just you look around, you want to surround yourself with the very best people because you don't get better by unless you are surrounded by great people who who build into you, right? And I reached out to Matt and said, I don't even remember what we were talking back and forth, and I just finally said, hey, can I join your collective? Can I be a part of this? I mean, this is an amazing group. And, of course, he said, yeah, we'd love to have you, and here's the deal. And and right away, I was like, gosh, this is such a great group. And to hear you all tell your stories and what you're doing and everything like that, I wanted to be a part of it because I knew that together we can make a difference you can't do it. You can't. You can't do it alone. Especially when just in the United States, there's 27 million children playing sports, which means there's like 
probably three or four million coaches. And every year, 25% of that number of coaches turns over. So every year, there are new, fresh, wide-eyed coaches, just like kids. Can't do it alone. I wanted to be a part of a group that I knew they were headed in the right direction. And they were all people that I could learn so that I could raise my game to the next level. Mm -hmm. Surround yourself with the very best, and maybe you, you you become one too, right? Roger that. What gets you excited about the Quality Coaching Collective? Everything we're doing, I mean, the whole thing with the physical literacy piece and how we're starting to see, you know, Matt's talking about how we're starting to see entire countries reach out and say, hey, help us build out a physical literacy program or school districts or sporting organizations. Um, The research, we've got people on, you know, in the collective who are these researchers who are going out and digging up the most recent scientific information regarding how to coach more effectively and, you know, the quality coaching piece. And, and we've got, you know, people who are working with the athletes and the coaches like you, and we've got people that are involved in the fitness portion of it, which is another big piece of the puzzle and injury recovery. Um, but the idea that all of us care about one thing and that is what's best for the kids. I mean, I'm just, I'm, amped to see where we go because every time we get that Thursday email that says, here's what everybody's doing, I'm just blown away by all the good that everybody's, everybody's doing. And what's really cool, and Martin, you're experiencing this, is when an email is sent to the group that says, hey, I need help with this, or does anybody have a suggestion for this, or hey, I'm working on this, that we all jump in mm-hmm. and make a difference. You know, um, uh, you know, when Go Play Better said, hey, we need, we're doing that research project with Harvard, can you get this out to everybody? You know, we all jumped on there and it was amazing how many of pe- group people in the collective were tapping their networks of athletes and coaches to get people to take the survey. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you said, hey, I'm starting a new podcast. And all of us are like, hey, I'll jump on it, man, and I'll promote it for you. This is great. <laughs> it's it's such a cool, cool group of, of people who are world experts, but there's no ego. It's just people that are on the ground making things happen. And it's it's just so fascinating for me to, to – move into this space and, and have the privilege of being able to have one-on-one conversations with many of you and including yourself and, and learn as much as I can. So, Hey, thank you so much for me. And, um, big picture thinking, you know, where, where do you think lies the greatest possible impact for the QCC? I really think, and it's way, and this is the beauty is way out of my wheelhouse. I, 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 I have no, this, this is not something I'm an expert in, but I think it's in that, that, the physical literacy movement patterns, fitness pieces, which is you and mad. And I mean, it's, you know, it's a whole handful of you, right? Um, I think that's the biggest impact because one of the biggest pushes or one of the biggest issues that I, I see coming back from organizations and coaches and parents and athletes is this whole thing of like Tommy John surgery at 13 <laughs> and or 15 and, and knees being blown out at, at 14 and, and kids not, you know, you, you've seen it before where the, the strength and conditioning coach for one of the NHL teams said that, you know, we've got kids that can't even throw a ball at age 15, things like that. It's like we're not seeing, as Dean Creelar says, we're not seeing those Legos being given to the kids at young ages so they can build these big, beautiful things. They're getting one or two Legos and they can't build a darn thing because we're not giving them enough physical literacy components. And that's really where one of the biggest changes I can see is as we shift the mindset as the collective shifts the mindset of, hey, let's use a long-term athlete development model. Let's let's build in these physical literacy pieces. Let's create competence and confidence at early ages and give these kids all the tools they need to move properly and stay in the game longer and be happier longer and be confident longer. Guys like me are going to benefit. 
I have nothing to do with that. I mean, that's not anything that I'm an expert in. So I'm sitting back and watching you guys and listening to you guys and and telling people they need to talk with you guys because I know that if you help, if you help at that starting point with physical literacy, we all benefit because when I get those coaches and players and stuff that I'm talking to, they already have the physical literacy pieces in place. Now we can dig into the software. Now I can talk to them about the brain and about communication patterns and all those other pieces that, that, that I know. And so I think the physical literacy is key because the other big thing is, and you, you know this, we've got a generation of kids right now. This current generation of children will be the first generation ever to not outlive its parents. They are expected to die five years younger than our expected age because we have so much obesity and so many physically illiterate children. And, and when you're physically illiterate, you stop playing because of it, and then you become obese, or you get injuries that, that are, you know, force you to stop playing, right? And we're not getting our kids to move anymore. Mm-hmm. They're leaving sport, and they're going and playing video games instead. And I don't have a problem with video games, but as long as it's one of the pieces of the puzzle, not the whole piece of the puzzle. And so that's the best part about you guys is if we can create a more physically literate culture worldwide, we're going to raise the life expectancy back up. And again, the longer they stay in sport, man, then we have the ability to build into them positive values and life skills and all those other pieces of the puzzle. So they become better human beings in the culture. And you saw it in Finland. The moment they shifted, or Iceland, I'm sorry, the moment they shifted towards sports as a builder of human beings, and not just sports, but arts and music and all the other pieces, crime rates went down, and and, uh, alcohol abuse in teenagers went down, and all these other pieces. You read the BBC articles and watch the TV shows on it. Iceland saw a revitalization of their civilization through sport, but we need them to be physically better at first. (laughs) So powerful, and you wouldn't believe I think almost every single person within the quality coaching collective listed that study of the next generation living five years less than that of their parents. Um, everybody's impacted by that. It's a big driver. So I'm, I'm with you on that one and doing my best on the physical literacy side and the, the health side to, to make a, a large impact. And also just taking some notes out of your, your pages here, read on caring and, and loving and, I'm a firm believer in the vessel of sport to create better people and uh, people who are equipped to succeed in, in life beyond sport. Uh, so hopefully we can keep kids in it for as long as, as, as they love it and really maximize our touch points right, uh, right from day one in sport to the, to the end, whenever that is. I totally agree. Yeah, man, I love what you're doing. I mean, it's the health piece is so big and, and we, it's overlooked. It's not just the physical side, right? So, it, but it's it's completely overlooked. Well, it's my my greatest opportunity now. Really, is is taking the physical side and and building the the physical core, but also as we're doing that, build build the personal core, build build those values. Who are you as a human being? But you're not allowed saying an athlete. And a good friend of mine who who runs a business called Legacy Coaching. His name's Vince Luciani. You're going to hear more about him as as time moves forward. We're working on some projects of the physical and the mental and the life style, life purpose, all in one. And uh, it's powerful stuff. Uh, I really love conversing about it. I care about it so much. And just got to really impact people through, through the power of sport, build better people versus just winners, which really at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Definitely. 
Definitely. Sport is just a, it's, it's a, it's a vehicle on the journey. It is not the destination. (laughs) Love it, Reed. Well, you, my friend are a a beacon of, of light and hope within this. And I thank you so much for your, your guidance and leadership. Uh, Although you don't know it, I'm constantly reading as much as I can through your website and everything that you're sharing. And once again, loving your tweets and your action there. So keep it up. And uh, where can people find you on social? On social, uh, if you go to Coach underscore Reed on Twitter, uh, that's me. Um, if you do CTG Project HQ, uh, that's our that's our Changing the Game project. And actually, it's listed in my bio on Twitter as well. But that's our Changing the Game project Twitter. I'm I'm on there, and and John and I just talked the other day. I'm going to be more engaging through our Changing the Game. I, I I laid back from engaging because it's you know I wanted people to be engaging with each other and stuff but uh, i'll you i'll be talking more on there uh on facebook if you search for changing the game project or you can search for also search for mine because i have a, a page i use just basically for my book um and so you can search for uh, i think it's the coach read but it, it'll bring up my echoes um it'll bring up my echoes you'll never hear echoes beyond the game perfect and then coachread.com is an easy place to find me Everything I do almost every day is centered around changing the game project. Anytime anybody contacts me, I funnel everything through that because we're so much better together than I would be to do something by myself. Um, and, and changing the game has such great programs. But I, you know, because I have my own books coming out, I do have my own website. I do very one-off blogs that are sort of less, less scientific and more personal. Like I just did one about how my son couldn't learn math the way I was trying to teach him because I was teaching him the way I learned, not the way he's able to learn and how it was a rude lesson for me. So stuff like that. And then I've got two podcasts, Shot Happens and The Coaching Code. And you can find The Coaching Code, obviously, on Twitter as The Coaching Code or look in my bio on, on my Coach Read Twitter. And that's that's where you can find me. I'm, I'm online all the time. And as Martin, as you know, I, I will talk. I do not have a problem <laughs> chit-chatting and interacting with people and everything like that because I, I love learning. I'm like you. I'm out there geeking out and reading your your feed and and Matt's feed and you know Joe's Joe's feed and everybody else's you know just to, to learn more myself. Perfect. Well, let's end it there. It's probably the longest one I've done, but tons of great information there. I can't wait to re-listen to this because you just gave so much today, Reed. So thank you so much, and uh, let's stay online to close it off. But uh, appreciate you being on the Quality Coaching Collective podcast. Ah, oh, it was an honor to be here, Martin. Thank you so much.